last week, we've been on this series for a while, (laughs) right? We'll be on this series for a while, too, because what Jesus told us to pay attention to is really pretty simple. It's about love. It's about loving him. It's about loving those around us. And where we were last week, we began talking about the parallels between Israel and us here in the United States, Gentiles, right? We drew some parallels in that the promises of Israel in the Word of God, and I'm not going to go too much over it last week. If you you weren't here, didn't get to hear it, or want to hear it again, um, you can can see it on Facebook or see it on our our, uh, website. But we drew the promises of what's coming, this, this coming promise that there will be fulfillment in the land of Israel. They will not only occupy the land, but the entire world will look to them for leadership. And we talked about it last week. That is going to be fulfilled in the thousand-year reign of Christ. When Christ comes... The second time he comes in power, he comes in a physical sense to bring his kingdom to this earth. That's Israel's promise. It has never been fulfilled since they entered the land the first time. And then, of course, they lost the land and had not been occupying the land for well over 2,000 years. But in 1948 they started coming back to the land. They became a nation in 1948. And so God is beginning to set up the parameters for that prophecy to be fulfilled in His people. Something that has never happened before, but He promised all the way back to Abraham. Right? But we paralleled that with what He promised the church. If you've been here for... Any of the, I think, oh, this is the sixth week. If you've been here for any of those six weeks, you've heard me refer to Revelation chapter 3. Right? Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, the synagogue of Satan will bow down to the church. Will bow down to those whose hearts are true and truly follow him. Okay, and we've gone through that. So there are parallels. Israel has a promise for Israel. The church has a promise for the church. It does not replace Israel's promise. It does not even coincide with Israel's promise. It can't. Because we're talking about world leadership, about world influence, about God's glory in two very distinct ways. But I wanted to draw that parallel because God is doing in the church the same thing that He is doing in Israel. He's bringing His glory. So when we talk about this end-time revival, the latter reign, when we talk about this global eyes-opening, this global awakening, we're talking about one thing. We're talking about God's glory. Because that's what comes through this 
is His glory. His glory will shine throughout the earth. You know what? Let, let's just turn there. I know we do this about every week, but let's be consistent. <laughs> let's turn to Revelation 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. says this, Behold, I will make those... And re- remember what this is. This is a letter to the church of Philadelphia. This is one of the seven churches. This is a letter to the church... This is not a letter to Israel. This is not a letter to the Pharisees. This is not a letter to the synagogues then. This is a letter to one of seven churches that Jesus sent letters to. Those seven churches represent actual churches of that time. Actual saved people, people that have accepted Jesus Christ into their heart. Okay, but it also represents, you know, why those seven? There were a lot more than seven churches back then. Why those seven? Well, it's because those seven also represent, if you look at what all seven of them are, you'll see that it represents all people within the church. And we all like to think, well, I'm Philadelphia. And that's awesome because Philadelphia had nothing but love for God, right? So that's the letter that we're talking about here. But in reality, all churches hold Christians that are represented by each letter. But what we're dealing with here, and, and I don't want to get sidetracked in that. That's a phenomenal study, by the way. Maybe one day we'll get into that. But what I want to deal with today is the fact that these letters are to Christians. These letters are to the bride of Christ. Okay? Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Don't confuse this with the promise to Israel. This is different. These are going out to the churches. This is going out to the body of Christ. And by the way, I'll point out again, if you didn't hear it before, verse 10. Because you have kept my word, talking to the body of Christ, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. It's to try those who went against Israel. That's what the tribulation is. It is a judgment for those who go against Israel. Notice verse 9 is before verse 10. Verse 10 is the rapture. Verse 10 is him taking his bride, his readied bride, home to be with him. That's verse 10. Verse 9 comes before verse 10. Verse 9 is huge. He said, all these people that say they believe in me but don't, all those who believe in a God but not the God, who, who, who don't have any, any love for the church at all, those I will make bow at the church's feet. Now, by the way, this isn't a matter of authority. Or I, I shouldn't say perhaps it is. It's a matter of seeing how much God loves us. That's what it says at the end there, Remember? The end of verse 9. I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Why? So that they will learn that I have loved you. 
Remember last week we talked about, and we won't look it up, you can look it up from uh, last week's notes. But remember last week we talked about how, how Israel is given this promise, and, and then there's this time that they just disobey God. Jesus comes, they don't see him as the Messiah, he dies on the cross, raises from the dead, and then he is killed by his own people, the Jews. And because of this, it opens up to the Gentiles. And Paul says, as we talked about before, Paul says, this was a great mystery in the Old Testament. Nobody knew this was coming, he said. And he said, I have the privilege of being able to tell you about this. That the Gentiles were grafted in to the promise. What's the promise? To be close with Jesus Christ. What's the promise? That he is going to rule. That was Israel's promise, him physically coming on earth, but to the church. His promise is that I will bring my glory on the church so heavy that the world who does not know me will see it and know that I love you. That's what that says. Read it again. I will make them that come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Do you think the world recognizes the church today as being loved by God? No, they can't. They don't even recognize God. They recognize no favor there. You know, it was interesting because I, in, in the mornings I, I'm with Ethan, for an hour, and we watched these cartoons, uh, biblical cartoons and stuff, and we were watching one with Daniel and, and how he became favored by the king. You know, Daniel was an outsider. Daniel wasn't, wasn't part of Babylon. He, 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 was, he was a Jew. He, he was there under servanthood. He was an outsider. But yet through God pouring into him, he gave favor to Daniel, and that favor shone to the king. So much so that it spread across the entire land. I mean, Daniel became powerful in Babylon. Dan Daniel was given favor. So those who did not know God saw the favor that was on Daniel. Even the king himself. That's what I'm talking about. That's what's going to happen with the church. You see, it's not going to be doom and gloom that brings God, Jesus Christ, to pick up his bride. His bride is not readied by a torn dress. His bride is not readied by wallowing around in the mud. His bride is readied when his bride reflects his glory. See, that, that was such an epiphany to me. Because the way the world is going, it's so easy to say, well, you know, we're just, we're just going in a bad way. And by the way, we are. But remember, that's not what, what readies the bride. So there comes a move of the Holy Spirit, which he has promised that he would do. There comes this move of the Holy Spirit as time is getting short. And the Holy Spirit begins to glorify the bride of Christ. 
begins to brighten the bride of Christ. Begins to favor the bride of Christ. Why? To get her ready. But before she leaves, she is going to be so glorified through Jesus Christ that the world who does not know him will see it, will respect it, will acknowledge it. That's huge. Because he's readying his bride right now. And that move of his Holy Spirit is about to begin. So we're going to go back to, again, the, the, we, we drew out parallels between Israel and the church. Now what I want to do is I want to go back to Israel, go back to Isaiah 58, and we're going to go through what he promised them. Because he also said how it was going to happen. Jesus said how it was going to happen, and then we're going to apply that to us today. Turn to Isaiah chapter 58. And um, I think we're, I'm just going to read through, we're going to go through the whole thing. But what, what the, I'm going to read through just this first part first, because what it's talking about is where Israel will be at at the time. This is where you're at. This is what you do. You, you say with your words what, what the Sabbath should be, but then your actions are different. Let's start at verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Does this sound familiar? Recognize the parallels. Why have we fasted? And this is Israel screaming this out to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves And you take no knowledge of it. And then Jesus gives an answer. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast to quarrel, only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? I want to stop there for a second. What he's saying there is how you are living your lives, how you are honoring me, is not honoring to me. And yet, you do this and expect me to answer you. You do this and expect me to come and and to do the things I've promised. To come and take the physical throne of David and and bring Israel to to the peaks of the earth in honor. 
He said, you ask me to do this thing, and you think that you honor me, but you don't honor me. Why? Because you just quarrel with each other. You don't invest in each other. Then he begins to lay out a plan. In verse 6, and we apply this to ourselves. Verse 6 says, is not this the fast that I choose? Okay, so he's saying, what we just read, that's you guys. And he's reminding them, here's what I'm saying. Here is the fast that I choose. And by the way, think of fast in terms of our relationship with God. It's time that we set aside our lives to focus on Him. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh or your own family, your your own people, if you will. So he's saying this is how it's supposed to be. I I want you to notice something there. He doesn't say there, you're not spending enough time with me. He doesn't say there that that you're not loving me enough. What he's saying is you're not caring enough for each other. See, their piety had risen so great that they became to themselves. That's what a monk is, by the way. If, you, if you've heard about monks and all that, their whole thing is about introspection, about finding God personally within themselves, separating themselves. And what God is saying here, when He's giving the very formula for Him to do what He wants to do to Israel, He says, What about your homeless? What about your families? What about those who are in need? Are you caring for them? Do you love them? Where is your love for these people? But he's saying, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. Verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. In other words, God has your back. When you do this thing, when you love the family as I love the family, I've got your back. Don't worry. I've got your back. Verse 9. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, and and yoke is burden, okay? And, And what he's talking about there is not individual yoke. He just said it in the previous verses. When we lift the yoke from each other, 
when we lift the burden from each other. If you take away that yoke from your midst, take away the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And he goes on to give a picture of what it will be like when Israel does that. What it will be like when Israel loves others. When they seek to take care of others and not just take care of themselves. See, this is what he promises them in the end time. But again, we parallel that to what he's doing in the church. And I want you to turn to John chapter 15. Because everything that he is doing in Israel has a parallel in the church, has a parallel in the bride of Christ. The same with what brings on Israel's glory in the thousand year reign of Christ will bring on the church's glory or the church's favor before he takes us home to be with him, before the rapture. And so what this is talking about here is John, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he's giving a, a word picture, a picture of what it looks like to serve Jesus Christ, what it looks like to serve the Father, the relationship between the two, and that there's a cost to doing this. But keep in mind what we read in Isaiah. Keep in mind that Isaiah said, you have to love each other. You have to reach out to those who feel unloved, who don't know Christ, who, who don't have the capabilities that we have. You have to love them. You have to show God's love through them. So let's read chapter 15, verse 1, or begin there. I am, this Jesus speaking to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I want to point something out very important here at the beginning. This is, this is just an unbelievable passage, but you have to get something straight right off the bat. He's not talking of the world. Right? He says, for every branch that is what? In me. Okay? Those that are in Christ. Remember we talked last week how, how when Christ died on the cross for our sins, it allowed, the, and I think this was in 1 Timothy 3, it allowed the Gentiles to be grafted in. That was... That was what Paul was so excited that it was this great mystery. And the Gentiles were grafted into that. So you can imagine, and he even uses the same verbiage, by the way. Because when, when you put a branch, when you're pruning a tree and, and you're, you're putting a branch into a tree, you graft it in. 
They even have really strange fruit that, that, that's made now where they, they graft two different types of trees together and it'll produce two different types of fruit. So you graft in that branch, right? That's what he's talking about. The Gentiles have been grafted in. So I want you to picture this tree trunk, okay, and then these branches coming out from that. We have been branches grafted into that tree trunk. That tree trunk is Jesus Christ. So the Father says that he prunes those branches. Those that produce fruit, he prunes them. What does it mean to prune them? It means you cut off the little dead parts. If you have a branch, you have some of the branches that produce leaves, produce fruit. You have other branches that might be dead. You cut off the dead pieces because they require sap. They require the nourishment of the tree. And so when you cut those off, more of that nourishment goes to the rest. It produces more fruit. If you've ever... If you've ever um, Uh, pruned a tree before, you know that's why you do it. Let's continue reading. He said in verse 3, already you are clean. So he's talking about all of these branches that are in him. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He says, abide in me and I in you. Abide. Be with him. Settle in him. To stay. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So, as we become Christians, when we get saved, and I've talked about this before, salvation is broken into three parts. The first part Justification, that is our salvation, that is our ticket to heaven, if you will, can never lose that. When you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, you are guaranteed, because the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with your spirit, right? And you're guaranteed that until you, you receive it, receive the promise, which is heaven. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 promise that. However, the body... Or, or the, we, us, are made up of three things. We are spirit, soul, and body. Right? Spirit, same word, the word for soul is like your mind. So we're, we're body, mind, and spirit, if you will. So when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in our spirit, guaranteeing us for salvation. However, we have this body and we have this mind that has been born into sinful flesh. It doesn't mean that all our sin leaves. It means that all our sin is forgiven. All our sin is forgiven and that is the criteria to get into heaven. However, for sanctification... Right? What God does to the mind and to the body. What He does to the mind. Paul says, you, you, you want to give over to Him daily for the trans, for the uh, regeneration of the mind. If there wasn't sanctification and we automatically get that at salvation, He wouldn't have had to say that. That's what it means to abide in Him. It means every day He is your best friend. Every day you are building relationship with Jesus Christ. Every day you're spending time with Him. If you have a best friend, 
What do you do? You spend time with them, right? You talk to them. They talk to you. You, you enjoy the time together. You abide together. That's what he's saying here. So verse, uh, verse 6 goes on to a different kind of branch. But remember, they're saved. This is a different kind of Christian, but they're saved. If anyone does not abide in me, does not develop this intimate relationship with me, there's a cost. And this is the cost. He is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Don't be confused there. Don't assume that's hell. Don't assume that that is the damnation for those who were never the branch in the first place. Because that's not the case. They are simply discarded because of their lack of fruit. So when we develop a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a fork in the road that we come to. Both of those forks, by the way, lead to heaven because we can't lose our salvation. One is abiding in Him and being used, and the Father works greater fruit in us. The other one is being saved, ignoring Him, having no fruit in our lives, having no relationship with Him, no abiding with Him. And there are costs to that. Not cost in salvation, but cost in sanctification. And again, that, that's, that's an easy rabbit trail to start going down. And perhaps we'll do that one day. Because it's a, an amazing study. But today I want to concentrate on those who abide in the vine. Because, see, I want, I want you to see what's there waiting for you when you do when you abide in Him, when you develop this relationship with Him, there is something there waiting for you and waiting for the body of Christ. Verse 7, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I don't know about you, but <laughs> that's huge. I mean, I mean, think about having such an intimacy with God that whatever you ask Him to do, He'll do. But see, you have to look from God's perspective. He doesn't look at the mark of somebody being you know, saved or not or justified or not as the mark for Him to fulfill that. Why? Because they have to have the mind of Christ. You have to have the mind of Christ for Christ to be able to trust that you're going to ask for the things He would ask for. That's the Father's stipulation. You want favor in your life. You want God to work in your life in miraculous ways. There's only one formula. It's not about, well, okay, i got, I got to pray for this and, and, and you know, I, I've got to claim this. I'll claim it. It'll be mine and I'll claim it. I, I remember there was a, I can't remember who it was. There, there was some motivational speaker that, 
that when Lex and I were in business, we used to, you know, go to these motivational seminars and, and get these people, whatever, I can't remember who he was. Um, but that was his thing. Just claim it. Claim it. You believe it enough, it'll happen. No. <laughs> I don't know where you get that. The Bible doesn't say that. See, what the Bible says is that there is a precedence first that has to be there. There has to be an intimacy with Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ needs to renew your mind. He needs to bring you to a place where you see things like He sees things. Do you understand that is the readying of the bride? He does that individually, but He does that collectively. That bride is not ready until we're thinking like Jesus Christ. Until we're on the same wavelength as Him. Until, and, and what is that? You, you look at the church today and, and, you know, I've been, I've been a Christian for 43 years. I'm 52 years old. I've seen the church go through many different cycles. And in all of my time, I, I've seen that the church overall focuses on itself. Even the churches that are great churches, seeing people saved and everything else that I've been a part of, they still focused on themselves. They focused on what they could bring to their ministry. They focused on God, what God is doing in them instead of thinking, wait a second, we're just part of the bride. We're part of the entire bride. And we're supposed to, remember what it said in Isaiah 58, we're supposed to think of the others. We're supposed to reach out to the others. So it's the same thing here when he says, abide in me. We're abiding in Him. We're developing this personal relationship in in Him. Why? To benefit each other. He readies the bride through that. And by the way, I can tell you from personal experience, as you draw closer to Him intimately, you will love other people. Flat out, no other way. It's just going to happen. Why? Because Jesus does. And when he is filling you with his love, he's starting to give you a filter to see other people as he sees other people. That's what readies his bride. See, when his bride's ready, we're going to think the same way as him. We're not going to be just barely hanging on to this world and God come because we're just so battered and beaten and torn. No, he's going to come and take his bride because his bride is ready, because his bride sees the rest of the world and sees each other as he sees them. If he takes us before we're ready, the fellowship isn't the same. It's just like a couple. And and whenever I talk to couples about getting married, it's about give yourself time to learn about each other. Right? Right? Peter and Lindsay, I told them that. How long has it been now? It's been. It's kind of like eight months, ten months, sure. something like that. Yeah. yeah. So what they do is 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 Christ is is teaching them, or, or just just like a marriage, you teach them to get to know one another, right? Once you start 
thinking on some of the same lines, it readies you to be married. It's no different with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if he just took the bride up to be with him and, and, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, they, they didn't have the intimacy with him or anything else, and, and we go to be with him? How, I don't know about you, but that would be a little awkward. It'd be a little strange, unless you, you think that once we die, automatically, and this is kind of how I grew up thinking, well, automatically, when, when we die, I have the mind of Christ. And boom, I'm this super Christian now that, now that I'm up there with him. No. Wow, if you find that in the Bible, I really want you to show it to me. Because it's not in there. It says we will receive glorified bodies. I think we maybe think that that means mind, too. But no, it comes from abiding in him. It comes from sanctification. Now, I do believe that everyone going into final eternity after the great white throne judgment will be sanctified. I think they have to be. The Bible teaches that. However, not everyone will be sanctified leaving this life. Because that takes effort. That takes effort of abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ. Right? So, so that effort, not everybody's going to do. You know, he said, those that, that don't produce the fruit, he, he sets them aside. Does it mean that, that they'll never be sanctified? They'll never give off fruit? No. It just won't be in this life. And, again, that's going on a different rabbit trail. I want to focus on what it means to abide in Him. I want to focus on what He does in relationship with Him that brings the body of Christ together. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, and this is about us abiding in Jesus. By this my Father is glorified, what? That you bear much fruit. Why? Why do we bear fruit? And so prove to be my disciples. What he's saying there is there is evidence if you are a Christian and you are abiding in the vine, there's evidence of that. And I know we talk about, you know, you can't judge others and all, all this stuff. And correct in one sense, you cannot judge a person's salvation. You cannot judge if they know Christ or not, if they have that golden ticket or not. You can, however, recognize if they're abiding in the vine. If they're abiding in Christ, if they have a close relationship with Him, you recognize that, you see that on people. Why? Because it's proof, and it brings glory to the Father. It says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Why? So you prove to be His disciples. So there's a reason for this. That brings God glory. That brings Jesus Christ glory. His name is lifted high. As more of the bride does this, as more of the bride understands that it's about intimacy with Jesus Christ, then the more, bride, the, more the bride will be ready for God to come. 
the more the bride will be ready to receive the blessing that he has. Now, by the way, that fruit can shine in millions of different ways. And, and this is one, one place where I, I think the church has gone a little off base. And, and that is thinking that, that well, well, you know, if we're abiding in the vine, there is only good that comes to us. There's only favor that comes to us. You know, as much as I struggled before as a cessationist, struggling as a cessationist thinking, you know, in, in, in this way that I think there's no power in the Holy Spirit, I, I, you know, and then I've told you that process I went through and, and how Christ showed me that the gifts of the Spirit were for today and there's this relationship through the Holy Spirit that is powerful. That is powerful. But then I feel like he's showing me the same thing on the other end. That you know what? God doesn't promise you riches. God doesn't promise us this easy walk through life. God doesn't promise you everything will be perfect. If he does, then the disciples really got ripped off. Because every one of them died a martyr's death except one. And they all got ripped off. But see, he didn't promise that. And many of the promises, and, and this is a tough one, I understand this, and, and, and I, I, don't get me wrong, I love the church body, and I have some of my best friends now believe what I'm about to say, so... Don't hold it against me. But God never even promised you perfect health or perfect healing in this life. And there's a confusion there because we think that all of these promises from God come in this life and it's just not the case. Why? Because this life is about abiding in Him, about Him pruning us, and about Him allowing Fruit to come from our lives. Now, does that mean, well, Scripture's wrong when it says that He promises this perfect healing and all this and that we will all be perfect? No. Because there will come a point where we have glorified bodies and we will have that. Now, is that to say that, okay, that means nobody gets healed? No. Jesus healed everybody when he would go into a place. He would heal everybody. Everybody in the, in the whole place. Now, by the way, that's not something we've, at least me, I've never seen that since the Church of Acts. I've never seen it. I've never even seen it on YouTube. But yet Jesus did it. He went in there because it was his will. He went in there and all were healed. Now I'm going to tell you the exciting part. Jesus also said in John, I think chapter 16, where he said, you will do more than I did on the earth. Why? Because I go to the Father. You will do more miracles. You will do more healings. You will cast out more demons than I did. And this will happen in the last days. You know what? We're in the last days, folks. And we're quickly approaching the last of the last days. So we're there. Make, make no mistake, we are there. Within the generation 
that, that Jesus Christ, or within the generation that Israel became a nation, he's going to return. We're there. We are at that time period. So Jesus Christ is going to work in his church more than he did when he was on the earth. So don't misunderstand me when I say that some will not be healed. You know, just, just like Paul was never healed. Paul was never healed of, of his infirmity that he asked for three times to have it taken away. He was never healed. Why? Because God saw a different purpose in it. If you read that passage, it says, I did this for a reason. I did it to keep you from pride. See, so that means Paul had a greater request than being healed. His greater request was that he stay intimate with Jesus Christ. See, that trumped everything. And when you do that in your life, it's going to trump all your other decisions, all your other prayers. If you keep praying, Lord, I want to be intimate with you, he begins to show you that path in how to be intimate with him. But if you continue praying that prayer, just understand that his focus is different than ours. Okay, when he looks at us, he does not look at us with an end goal of this life. He looks at us with an end goal of when the bride is ready and he takes us home. That's his end goal. That's where he wants to get us to be, be ready for. That's his end goal. So this isn't about how God uses us. Because we're all many members. 1 Corinthians 12 says we're all members of the body of Christ. All of us have different giftings. All of us have different functions. All of us have different testimonies. All of us have different things that God is going to teach and God is going to use. So don't take a promise and blanketly just say, well, okay, well, uh, I'm supposed to be rich because, God, you you promised that we would have your favor and and have everything provided and, and have all this. Again, don't confuse the two. There are promises. He has promised to provide everything we need. 1 Corinthians 9.8, But my God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. But don't get your mind in the way of what he thinks you need. There's a big difference there. Well, what I think, God, you've called me to be a businessman, and this is kind of where I was for 25 years. You've called me to be a businessman, so Lord, here's the list of things I need. I need this, 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 and this. So, by the way, throw in wisdom there so I know how to deal with all that. Okay, but in his mind, he's thinking this. You just need to abide in me. If you abide in me, I will take you through it step by step. I will provide 2 Corinthians 9, 8, everything you need to do it with. As you take that step in faith in me and trust in me and abide in me, I will show you what you need. But see, God's not thinking about your business becoming a success as his end game. 
He's thinking about what it's going to take to bring you to an intimate place with him. That's why he never healed Paul of that infirmity. Because he knew, and he said, I kept it there for the sake of your pride. Because that would draw you away from me. So when you look at your life and there are things that that you lose and you don't understand why and you don't understand what God's doing, but yet you're seeking Him intimately. You're trusting Him. You're going after Him. And yet it's not going the way you, you think it's supposed to. Don't be confused by that. We don't have to take charge of our end game. We don't have to take charge of what God is going to do in producing the fruit in our lives to prove that we're His disciples. It just grows. See, the branch doesn't decide, okay, I'm just going to bear fruit. Fruit, go now, go. No, it doesn't work that way. You graft into the vine. You receive the sap or the life from the vine. And that is what produces the fruit. That's what produces growth. That's what produces Joy, that's what produces love. That It produces everything. Just that intimacy. So that, that's why I've said for years that, that really God made it simple. All you have to worry about is intimacy with Him. Let's keep going. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Let's stop there for a second. So He's telling you here, I just need you to listen to me. I just need you to obey me. If you obey me, you abide in me. Obedience comes from a direct contact with him. This direct continual contact, this abiding in him, comes obedience. And he says, when we're obedient to his commands, when we abide in his love, we automatically abide in the Father's love. When we follow the commands of Jesus Christ and this intimacy with Him, we're automatically falling in the same intimacy with the Father. And this is so our joy may be full. See, see like a good parent, he's not thinking of himself. All this command, all this teaching is so we live a joyful life. So our joy is full. That's what he does. He's a good, good father. So what is his commandment? Let's read verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He didn't write a book there. He knew we couldn't handle a book. They already tried that in Leviticus. He just made it really simple. 
He said, if you love each other, just love each other. You know, when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. But see, he expands expands upon that here. He says, love one another, what? Not as yourselves, but as I have loved you. See, we're to love each other. We're to love each other in such a way that it's noticeable. We're to love each other in such a way that there is proof of fruit. If there is no love in your life, you're missing something. You're missing the direction of intimacy with Jesus Christ. Because when you draw to him in intimacy, his love does the work. His love overwhelms you. His love then begins to take on the shape of your personality. Because you're an individual. You're a member of the bride and he begins working you to to place you into his church and give you that place that's needed. But it all comes through this intimacy. It is all about just trusting him. Just seeking him. Just falling in love with him. If you fall in love with him, there will be fruit in your life. If you abide in that love, if you fall in love with him and are intimate with him, your joy will be full. What does that mean there? The word full there in the Greek is complete. It will be perfect. It will be everything that you need. See, because we don't decide what we need in reality because God's looking at a different end game than we are. He wants us intimate with him. He knows what it's going to take to get us there. All we have to do is submit ourselves to him and say, I want it. I want intimacy with you and I trust you. Let's bow our heads for prayer.